Today we're talking about the devil. Okay, so I, I was wondering if anybody was going to clap for that, but um, guys, we've got a journey to go, so as much humor as we can do in this, the better. This might be a little bit more um, on the longer side. I'll just forewarn you. The reason for that is there is so much work that we need to do in the scriptures to get an understanding of the devil. I think maybe even when I said that, there were some images maybe that were conjured up in your mind, Um, maybe some weird kind of cartoon renderings. Maybe if you grew up in a church tradition, you, instead of Halloween, you did Halloween. And what that was is it was a play um, that was put on to terrorize kids about hell. So anybody that was in hell, it was mainly teen moms and people that were drunk and died from a car crash. That was Halloween. Maybe you're skeptical of all of it. Maybe the devil makes no sense. That was like grandma's kind of superstitious religion. Maybe you have an unhealthy obsession with the devil. Maybe every bad thing is the devil. You see where we got a lot of work to do? There's a lot of questions, a lot of things that have been kind of, I think, misapplied and misunderstood about the devil. C.S. Lewis, I think it's helpful here. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve entirely in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors, talking about the devils. Whether you obsess over him or you don't buy any of this, Or maybe you do believe in him, but you don't actually see that he has any power to do anything. We've got our work to cut out for us. And my hope is that by the end of this, that you get a very clear, just kind of understanding of the reality of spiritual warfare, the devil behind it, and then our like fight, our response, and our role to play in all of this. So I just wanna wanna pray. before we get into this, just recognizing what we are about to get into. Let's just posture for a moment. Father, there's a real evil in the world. so much so that you asked us to pray for protection from him. God, would you just simply speak through your text? Give us clarity, give us eyes to see and ears to hear the reality of what is going on around us on the the unseen things. That we can not walk forward in fear, but that we can be wise and aware, filled with your spirit. I pray that in Christ's name, amen. It has been so interesting. I've been talking recently to even a lot of you um, around like spiritual warfare, 
a big question that has come up is, was what happened to Dan's spiritual warfare? What power does the devil have? And so as we press in uh, to this, I already said this, but this text is very clear. There's a reality of it, but there is a real personal evil behind it. So verse 11, let's jump right in. Reality of spiritual warfare. And God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. So this is one of another one of those passages that has been wildly, I think, misapplied. Uh, If you grew up in the 70s or 80s, I think also in the 90s, this was this too. Um, For the right price of $89.99, you can heal all diseases with this used hanky. That was televangelist kind of like application of this verse. I, I don't see that Paul is going and selling used hankies here. What's interesting is that it wasn't actually even him doing this. It was God channeling through him and people were recognizing that the power of God was winning. Ephesus was a very superstitious city. They were very into sorcery. So it makes so much sense that God was coming in incredible power to show these people that there is a much greater, superior power than what they have seen. It's also juxtaposing the next three verses because what we're about to see is all these Jewish wizards who can't do what Paul's doing. So Paul is showing a very just real power of God that is happening and what happens when the gospel goes forth. There are crazy things that happens. Then when we get to verse 13, we see these Jews that are trying to do the same thing. So verse 13, some Jews went around driving out evil spirits, tried to invoke the name of the Lord over the demon possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. And so seven sons of Sceva, sounds like a bad rock name. This Jewish wizard band, they were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? And then the man with the evil spirit jumped on them, overpowered them, he gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding the word of the Lord. So these were some exorcists. Uh, This was not uncommon practice of uh, Jewish exorcists. They would go around, um, offer kind of strange Hebrew incantations. Um, The Ephesians were attracted to sorcerers. And so this makes a lot of sense that they're trying to make a buck off of this. They're very aware that Yeah, this is a very superstitious city. Maybe we can grow in power. But what's interesting is if you remember, so last week we talked about how the Holy Spirit descended. This was kind of a mini Pentecost in Ephesus. But Luke is showing us that what happens here in this story happened before in Acts 8. So when the Spirit descended on Samaria, 
we get another guy who's trying to profit off the name of the Holy Spirit. Do you remember who that is? Simon the sorcerer, does that ring any bells? It's the same thing that's happening here. And so Luke is putting these stories together to make a point. You cannot profit off the Holy Spirit. This is God doing the work, not you using God. And so the demon basically says, I know I can't best Jesus or Paul, but you guys have no power to do anything over me. And so he is not forced to relinquish control, and then he overpowers these exorcists. And so really the, one of the main points out of this that I want you to see is that there is a very real influence of spiritual darkness. But there is also an assurance that Jesus reigns superior over these powers of darkness. I mean, look at the outcome at verses 17. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear. The name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly, which calculated the value of those scrolls, which today somewhere around thousands to even millions of dollars. And in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. So God uses what seems to actually be a victory for the demonic here. God actually uses this for revival, That word there for fear, phobos, it can also mean like a deep reverence. There is a complete just brokenness and repentance over sin in Ephesus and rebellion against God's reign and turning to Jesus. And so when they burn their books, they're like, no, there's there's something crazy happening. God, Yahweh, the God of Israel seems way more powerful than what we've ever seen and we need to take seriously these claims that Paul is saying. And so they turn and they trust him. Again, it was probably millions of dollars of property that they burned. There was a whole new affection running around in Ephesus, a love for Jesus. Their actions shouted that he was more valuable to him than any other God or power or money. So here's the point. When the church got serious about taking Jesus at his word and entering into the battle, the word of God prevailed. Because the only thing that can set free spiritual strongholds in a city is the gospel itself. And I don't mean that pejoratively, like just preach the gospel and then turn a blind eye towards injustice. No, I mean the gospel that God has come and that his spirit has descended. And when that like affects you and everything about you changes, your life, your time, your treasure, your temple, like everything is put on Jesus and that spills over into a community That is the only hope for the city. And when that happens, expect spiritual warfare. Maybe even when I said those two words, that was some sort of trigger. Either this is nonsense or 
maybe again, the crazy depictions of the devil, whether you have an obsession with the spiritual realm or just this is all nonsense, I, I do think we need to really build out and develop what, what do the scriptures say about this? So what I wanna do really for the rest of our time, because this is such a major theme in the scriptures, Paul and the New Testament writers and Jesus certainly have a working understanding of it. In his letter to the Ephesians, so a little bit later, he would write to the same people that just saw this whole thing. He would say to them, verse 10 of chapter six, finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil. For our struggle, here it is, is not against flesh and blood. It is not against humans, but against the rulers, the authorities, and the powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Paul does not take lightly this, nor a personal evil behind it. And so really to understand spiritual warfare, we have to take a look at the commanding evil behind it for Paul, for the New Testament writers, and for Jesus, it's the devil. So the devil according to Jesus. We're gonna go to John 8, and we're gonna work through a story here. So John 8, 44, uh, this is Jesus saying to the Pharisees, um, you belong to your father, the devil. <laughs> you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to truth. There's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So the context of this passage, Jesus, again, he's talking to the Pharisees. These are the religious kind of elite of his day. And he's having a dialogue with them around what is truth. About 13 verses before what I just read, Jesus would say, if you hold to my teaching, you really are my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And then what's interesting is the Pharisees say, we're Abraham's children. We've not been slaves to anybody, which is so ironic because you were to Egypt and to Babylon. <laughs> but he does, Jesus doesn't respond there. I think he's probably like, are you kidding me? But anyway, he graciously responds with what he's talking about in this chapter is a slavery to sin, to self, to lies of the world and to the enemy. Everyone's enslaved to that. Paul would pick up on this imagery in Ephesians 2. Before Jesus, before God who is rich in mercy, who rescued us and made us alive in Christ, before that, we were enslaved to the world, the flesh, and the schemes of the devil. And so Jesus responds with how he's talking about, again, slavery to sin. And that doesn't jive well with the Pharisees. They say, no, we are... Our only father is God, because Jesus is alluding to the fact that the works of their own father, subtly alluding to the devil here, 
They throw down and say, well, at least we're not illegitimate children. Talking about the virgin birth here. At least our father is God. Jesus doesn't let him go on that one. He says, no, your father is the devil. He was a murderer from the beginning. His native language is lies. So I wanna break down just kind of those three things, one of the most extensive teachings we have from Jesus about the devil. Here it is, obvious enough. Number one, for Jesus, there is a devil. I love what um, Robert Jensen says here, the existence of a tempter. Satan, the devil, Lucifer, the old serpent, is an ongoing conviction, not just of Christianity, but also Judaism. So the um, religion of where the follower of Jesus came out of. This reflects more than anything else a common experience. There does seem to be somebody out there laughing at us. I was skeptical about the existence until I made that observation. The disasters that happen, they could just be disasters, but we seem to be mocked by them. So many of us, when we think of Satan, we think of that as a proper name. It's not. It's a title. Actually, in Hebrew, it adds the article the in front of it. So it's the Satan, which is the same uh, word there for Greek, which is diablos. That's the Hebrew there. If you want to make that a tattooed, you can. It's a popular thing now, but maybe not that one. I don't know. Same meaning for the Greek word, accuser, to slander. Some other titles, the evil one, the tempter, the destroyer, the deceiver, the great dragon who deceives the whole world, the ancient serpent who leads the whole world astray. So what I wanna do, again, is just give kind of a biblical mosaic of the devil. There's gonna be a lot of scripture here. I'm not gonna be able to read all of it, but I will include it for you to go back and read it if you want. But just a few things that I wanna walk through to build just kind of an, an image of who he is. Number one, he was created. That's really important. He is not God's equal. He had a beginning and he has an end. Ezekiel 28, it's given this story of a king, but it's written with the backdrop of the Garden of Eden, with the story of Eden, where it's talking about this being was created by God and he was given significant authority. He has real status and power over the other spiritual beings that God created. However, as we see in that story, and also in Revelation 12, Isaiah 14, he chooses to rebel against God. Why? Because he wanted to be God. And so he enlisted as many spiritual beings to come with him, which is really important, because he is not alone. His kingdom is an organized evil. And he's ruled as the prince of the world. So we can't blame the devil for everything because he's not everywhere, but he is not alone either. John 14, I'll say not much more to you, for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold over me. 2 Corinthians 4, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel 1 John 5, we know that we are children of God and that the whole world is presently. 
This is written after when Jesus ascended. We know we're children of God and the whole world is under the control of the evil one. That makes us uncomfortable. (laughs) That's why it makes sense that God would, or through Jesus, Jesus would say, pray that God's will would come here on earth as it is in heaven. Matthew 12, if Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How can the kingdom stand? So his kingdom is organized evil. And his primary MO, his primary role is tempting humans into spiritual deformation to become the image of the devil. That's Genesis 3, that's Job 1. Basically, the whole argument of Genesis 3 is that you can become like God. Trust yourself. Seek autonomy apart from God. He is the animating animating evil behind a lot of human atrocity, evil, and sickness. More on that in a second. But our great hope here is that Jesus, and I love, like, we don't plan this stuff. It's just all these songs just seem to pair up so well. That Jesus came to destroy the devil's work. To bind the strong man. To set humanity free. 1 John 3, 8, the one, do, the one who does uh, what is sinful is of the devil because the devil's been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Mark 3, 27, Satan opposes himself as divided, can't stand. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. I love this. This is how Jesus is saying, I've bound the strong man. And I've plundered the riches of the world. What is that? You, follower of Jesus. <laughs> Hebrews 2.14, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. And finally, through his death, resurrection, and ascension, Colossians 2, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a spectacle of them, triumphed over them by the cross. So Jesus' victory of the devil's work was a decisive blow, marking the beginning of the war's end. But here's the deal. When you know you've lost, you become almost even more dangerous. He's wounded, he's angry, he's bound, he's dangerous. And that's why Jesus would say this is like an all-out assault on the gates of hell, the kingdom of God, Matthew 16, 18. But our great hope is that when Jesus returns, he will finish what he started. On that day, the devil and his posse will be thrown into a lake of fire and the children of God who are in allegiance to Jesus and not the devil, will take their place in the kingdom of God. Revelation 21, I love, Bobby just read that. So for Jesus, there is a devil. He's not a myth. He's not a product of over-imagination of your grandma's superstitious religious stuff. He is certainly not this picture either. I think this is what we think of, of Will Ferrell shredding the guitar in a devil outfit. These are caricatures. 
He is an immaterial, real intelligence in the world with more power, listen, with more power than any other created being. God's not created. But out of all of his creatures, he holds more power. He is the evil behind so much And this is where I think just modern kind of understandings of evil and all of our intellectual glory, we have come up against a wall in explaining things like World War I, World War II, racism, economic colonialism, or on the small scale, like your inability to hold back biting comments towards your friends or your drinking habits. This is where C.S. Lewis would warn us about chronological snobbery, about not giving the devil any credit. Like this is nonsense, we've evolved beyond this like creature. This is known as the Flynn effect. This was named after a guy named James Flynn, psychologist in New Zealand. Basically what he said, since the 1950s, our IQ has grown by a decade, by three, I'm sorry, three points by a decade, every decade which would mean two things. One, your great-grandparents had an IQ of 70, mentally handicapped. And then the other thing is that humans now can access like 100% of their brain. Like the movie Lucy. Anybody see that? No? Limitless? Bradley Cooper? Okay, yeah. It's like we can like, we are just these like superhumans now. But ironically, since the 1990s, IQ has actually been on the decline. Also around that time the internet happened, but (laughs) you put two and two together there. Yes, our cumulative knowledge as a species has grown. We know we're not the center of the solar system. We know that jagged rock formations are not like demonic, but erosion. But here's the deal. Knowledge is not the same as intelligence, which is also not the same as wisdom. What if Jesus actually saw the world correctly? What if his worldview accounted for human and spiritual realms with a great war at place? What if it is because he has the most insight into the human condition than any other teacher out there? And as a society, we try and deal with problems by dealing with other things rather than the root cause. And in all of our knowledge, what if we are actually oblivious to the facts? I'm just saying in, in a culture that we have that, that keeps an open mind, if you are skeptical, I just ask you the same of you. The devil is real and Jesus was right. And for Jesus, number two, his end goal is to spread death. Verbatim, John 8, he was a murderer from the beginning. John 10, 10, the thief, another name for him, comes only to steal to kill and to destroy. But I have come that they may know life, have it to the full. So if Jesus' will is earth as it is in heaven, then the devil's is earth as it is in hell. That's a 
misconception that the devil's in hell. No, he is roaring and he is prowling on earth. And he is hell-bent, literally, on burning the world to the ground. Tear it down. As Alfred from Batman said, some men just like to watch the world burn. Wherever he finds life, he wants to stamp it out. Definitions of love corrupt it. Unity in the church, just get them fighting about everything else. Human flourishing, anarchy, or tyranny, either one works. I mentioned how earlier the devil is still the animating energy behind so much that is broken and evil. And I do think this is largely what people think of with spiritual warfare. This is a subset of it known as demonization, as we see in our Acts 19 passage. In the Bible and Jesus, they all have a category of where the devil and his kingdom, listen, they do have power to possess and oppress people. And here's two from the scriptures. Number one, the devil and his horde of spiritual beings have the ability to afflict human beings with physical and mental illness. Mark 9, I won't read it, but you can go back to it. Mark 9, 14 through 29 is a story of a little boy who is possessed by a demon, but it also says how he is deaf and mute. And what's really interesting is when he is rescued, he starts to talk. Two things are happening there. Luke 13, 10, on Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues. And listen, a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and she could not straighten up at all. Acts 10, 38, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. And how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil. This is so uncomfortable (laughs) because you might be wondering, well, are you then saying that all physical and mental illness is of the devil? That's not what I'm saying. Hear that. This is where we run the danger of over-sensationalizing the work of the devil. He is not everywhere. Every time you cough, That is not necessarily the devil. (laughs) We need a certain wisdom and discernment to not just blame the devil for everything. But with that said, we do need a category for it. He is powerful and he is able to as well. I don't think we can just say on the other end of the spectrum, well, now we know better. Disease and illness is because of blank. Because it is very possible we may not know. And there's mystery there. He is defeated, but he's not destroyed yet. I need you to hear that. We are in this messy middle here. And I just, there is a certain humility and a balance that we need when talking about these things. It is very possible That illness, demonic dreams is the work of the devil. So to answer our question, was what happened to Dan's spiritual warfare? It is very possible. 
This is why Jesus even said to us, be mindful of the devil, because he prowls around and he says to ask for protection and deliverance from the evil one in the Lord's prayer. Do you see that? Pray for it. Ask God to deliver and heal. But don't just go around saying, oh, you have this illness, well, you're possessed. We need a category. Number two, the devil and his horde of beings, they have the ability to afflict the natural order, creation itself, with evil and suffering and even death. Look at Job 1 and 2 there, Romans 8, 18 through 22. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For creation was subjected to frustration. Get this, not by its own choice, but what? By the will of the one who subjected it. And we are waiting for it to be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into freedom. C.S. Lewis wisely said, there is no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by the devil. However, as we've just talked about, this is demonization. This is a subset of spiritual warfare, and I do think this is largely what we think of with it. But what is really interesting, in Jesus' most in-depth teaching of the devil, he doesn't mention any of it. Did you see that? It's not to say that it doesn't happen. We just showed how it does. But what Jesus sees as our primary war against the devil is a battle to believe truth over lies. So for Jesus, number three, the devil's means, his like mode of operation is lies. John 8, 44 again, you belong to your father, the devil, and you wanna carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to truth. There's no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks his native language. He is a liar. He's the father of lies. And so Jesus and the apostles, they warn us over and over again of the dangers of lies, of deception, of false doctrine, false teachers who are wolves in sheep's clothing. One of Jesus's last teachings in Matthew 24 is watch out that no one deceives you. Over 40 times in the New Testament, the writers warn us of deception because deception was tied to temptation, which was tied to slavery, to sin. And Jesus said the only way out of that one is the truth. The devil can't make you do evil. Let me say that again. The devil cannot make you do evil. He has to fool you to choose it. He has to chart a path forward opposite of what Jesus calls for and disguises it as a path that will lead to your joy. His strategy, deceptive ideas that play to our disordered desires that are normalized in our world. His lies are not just random untrue facts that you can find on Google and figure out, no, that was a lie. No, it sounds a lot like this. Hey, you deserve to be happy. 
And let's face it, you haven't been married or you haven't been happy in your marriage for years. Your wife or husband's just not the right fit for you. It happens. You married way too young, way before you were self-aware. And this marriage just isn't what you hoped it would be. And in fact, if you were to divorce them, I'm sure there's someone out there who would be a better fit and would make you happy. That's what it sounds like. He's more sinister, craftier, and emotionally loaded, like Genesis 3. If you do this, you can become like God. In fact, God is like, he's holding out on you. You can't trust him. You know what's best. So take and do. Those are the lies. And in our world, then, what that has created is we believe we are God or a spark of the divine is in all of us. Our authentic selves need to be let out of their cage. Our desires are the source of wisdom and direction. We must be free from external authority to actualize our potential. Be true to ourselves. You do you. Speak your truth. Don't let anyone tell you what to do. You like feel that? And so we sin or we, we rebel against the rule of God because we believe a lie about what will make us happy. And I've said this before, as Ignatius of Loyola puts it, sin is our unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is only my deepest happiness. That's why every single one of us, the scriptures say, we're deserving of wrath. But God, who is rich in mercy, (laughs) broke the teeth of evil, bound the strong man, gave us access back to the Father, gave us his spirit so that we could then know what is true. And that truth will set us free. And so our fight with the devil is first and foremost a fight to take back control of our minds from their captivity to lies and to liberate them with the weapon of truth. That is our primary fight against the devil. Let me unpack that. Acts 19, again, our passage, 17 through 18. It first starts with repentance. So when, they became, when this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. It starts with a genuine understanding that we are not God. We cannot find what our hearts are looking for. Our rebellion has made a mess of our lives and the world around us. But we have made, been made right and we have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit, if you've been united with Christ, then he is committed to forming you into the image of Jesus, not the image of the devil. There really are only two options here, and I know that sounds so harsh, but it is reality that has been painted from the scriptures. You either are becoming like Jesus or you are becoming like the devil. 
There is a real intelligence in the world who is hell-bent to trick you into rebelling against your creator that will ruin your soul now and forevermore. So spiritual formation is not a Jesus thing, it's a human thing. We are all being formed every minute of every day. We are all becoming someone. The question is, who are you becoming? This is where Jesus gives us the key to this fight. In John 4, 23, yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship him in both spirit and truth. So we need his very presence. And we need truth about reality. That's why when we look to Jesus' life, if you go to Luke 4, this is the pattern set for us by Jesus to fight the devil. He was full of the Holy Spirit, led out by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. Three times then in that story, the devil tempts Jesus. He's he's giving lies that are playing into the undercurrents of Jesus' desire to get the kingdom, but to get the kingdom in a different way, to get the right thing, but in the wrong way. But what does Jesus show us? Well, he's doing a practice known as silence and solitude. He's fasting, he's praying, and his mind and his mouth are full of the scriptures. So we could say it this way, the spiritual disciplines or practices are spiritual warfare. This is our part we play in the fight. It's through the practices of Jesus that we present our minds and bodies before God and open our souls to his spirit and truth. So why James 4 would say, submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, he will flee from you. This is why again, Ephesians 6, Paul would say, be strong in the Lord and in his power, put on the full armor of God. This is just a list of practices so that you can take your stand against the devil Verse 16, take up the shield of faith so you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is what? The word of God. Three times the devil spews lies and three times Jesus speaks reality from the scriptures. He does not just think about the scriptures, he thinks the scriptures. We just did a teaching on this. Put the Bible to memory. I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that. And it will take time. But you can actually rewire your brain to organize your mind around God. And this is a responsibility I just don't think we take serious enough. Habakkuk 1 talks about how God's eyes were too pure to even look on evil. Guys, we do it for entertainment. Everything we allow into our minds, it has effect on our souls for good or for evil. And neurobiology affirms this. What we see affects our mirror neurons and how thoughts enter the mind. 
And then those create neural pathways in our brains, which create DNA proteins into our nervous systems, which are disseminated throughout our bodies. And some even argue can be passed on to our kids. Translation, what you give your attention to will shape the persons you become. Or as Psalm 1 says, what we become is what we meditate on, either wicked or good. Close here with this illustration. The average, the average American adult watches six hours of television a day. The average millennial spends four hours on their phone a day. That's a decade of your life. Over 2,800 hours are spent consuming digital content and only 153 of those hours are anything related to Jesus. That means the rest of it is God knows what. YouTube, Netflix, Instagram, I mean, the ratio is bad. Hours a day, and I'm, listen, I'm not shaming you, I, I fall victim to this too, but hours a day, are spent on a different vision of human flourishing. And maybe minutes are spent on what Jesus says is human flourishing. That's if you read your Bible every day. Is it any wonder why we don't see the world through the lens of scripture? We become what we give our attention to. Or Mary Oliver once said, our attention is the beginning of devotion. So to turn our attention to God through all the days and weeks, we have to think deeply and we have to think rightly about him. To rewrite neural pathways and mental maps around his vision to get a better picture of reality. To become like him. Human. You become the most you when your mind is just saturated in what he says is true. So how do we fight the devil that is ravaging God's good world? Yes, a piece of it is demonization. He has real power, but the primary fight is a war against lies. And Paul would encourage this new church in Acts, take your stand against the devil's schemes. Be filled with the spirit. Know the truth because the truth will set you free. And if all you heard in the past however many minutes was go find a quiet place to read your Bible and pray, then praise God. Because that's Basically, but exactly what I'm saying. The devil is a real intelligence in the world, but he is not the final authority. He has power, yes, but he has an end date. And we exist in this messy middle. And our call has to be to meditate deeply on the things of God and let those give you picture of reality. And so as a practice, I'm just, I'm gonna encourage you, a simple thing that you can do this week. First thing upon waking, if at all possible, 
before you touch your phone or open a browser, spend time in quiet prayer and in the scriptures. It will take some time, but with all good habits, it's slow, but it does get into your mind and body. So quiet prayer and scripture. I just want to encourage you, before you touch your phone, soak your mind in what Jesus says is, is true before they're assaulted by the devil's lies. And if you want to reach, uh, reach practice that we had this week uh, in our life groups, you'll hear this uh, worksheet. It's all about exposing just lies of the enemy and how to combat them then with scripture. I'd encourage you to do that. But let's close in, in uh, prayer. Father, you've given us a very real picture of a real animating presence of evil in the world. I pray against just the responses of fear and over-obsession with him. He does not have all power. Father, I also pray that we have a very realistic understanding that he does have power. And he is at work. But not for long. Because you said even the gates of hell would not prevail against your church. Through your bloodshed, you ushered in a whole new kingdom that will one day take full control. That's why you asked us to pray for it, that it would come, that it would grow. And Father, protect us then from the schemes of the devil as we move out in real power May we move out in holiness as the church did in Ephesus. May we come and confess sin. May we live freely and lightly in the kingdom of God so that filled with your spirit, the power of God goes out. And even though the devil is hell-bent on breaking it down, you will prevail So we're banking on that. Come, Lord Jesus. Take back what is rightfully yours. And as your people, as your children, may we walk out in freedom and in power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.